sermons on Sunday morning. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, and uh, we want you to hear the Word, but we want you to see it with your own eyes. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you today. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. And therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that we're going to study here today, and we pray that you would use it in our time in studying it to just um, cause how you uh, see uh, all of this uh, to become how we see it and our perspective as well, Lord, in talking about government and living in a context of, of government. We pray for a work of your Holy Spirit uh, through your word today in shaping uh, this part of our Christian life as well. And shape it, we ask you do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In these uh, verses, the Apostle Paul uh, continues his description from uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 of the presented life of what a life will look like that has been presented as a living sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And uh, the description of what a living sacrifice looks like is, uh, carries all the way through the end of the book from chapters 12 through uh, chapter 16. And up to this point, I think, in his description of the presented life or life of a living sacrifice, he's addressed things that we would all tend to look at and say these are uh, obviously or, or overtly spiritual. Uh, in verse 2, talking about not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. In chapters, th uh, ver rather verses 3 through 8, he talks about the attitude that we as Christians are to have uh, toward uh, the church. And, uh, and a desire for its vitality, a desire for its health and, uh, and, and its prosperity taken to the point that we uh, are exercising our spiritual gifts within the context of a local church and, and uh, engaging in Christian service. And then in verses 9 through 16, Paul uh, spoke to us about what our relationship between one another is to be as Christians. And then as we saw last week in verses 17 through uh, 21 of chapter 12, instruction, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, concerning the subject of vengeance. And as you're just kind of reading through, you remember that there were no chapters and verses in the original letter, and he's talking here about how do we conduct ourselves with one another in the church and then vengeance, and then all of a sudden he starts to talk about uh, government. And I mean, uh, the, as he begins now to talk about this, this subject, I mean, it's, it just comes on the scene so suddenly and uh, so jarringly here in in these first seven verses of, of chapter 13, uh, Paul comes now to address a government and a Christian's relationship to it. 
And, and it, it has seemed to some to be so odd and so jarring a, an introduction of the subject that there are even some that feel that uh, this wasn't a part of Paul's original letter or that he, he, he wrote it, it toward the end of the letter and then had somebody insert it uh, a little, you know, into this point in the progression of the letter. But I, I certainly don't believe that at all. And I also don't think that the insertion of this instruction concerning government and our relationship to it as Christians is, is odd at all. I think it's important to realize that though the truths that Paul declares here are universal and they are timeless, but Paul spoke these truths in a particular historical uh, context. In the early church, the very, very early part of church history, the church was made up entirely of Jews. And then when Paul writes this letter in 58 AD, the church is now heavily represented not only by Jews, but also uh, by Gentiles. And, uh, and the, the church that Paul writes this uh, letter to, the church in Rome, is now characteristic of virtually all churches in the world apart from the church in Jerusalem and that it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so this letter to the Romans was written by Paul uh, during the reign of the very, very notorious uh, Roman uh, governor, Roman, Roman Caesar by the name of Nero. And at this particular point in time in church history, the persecution of Christians, which up to now had been almost solely the domain of Jews against uh, uh, Christians, was now being uh, taken up uh, in earnest by the Gentiles, by Rome. And what began as a trickle of persecution at the beginning of Nero's reign uh, ends up becoming a flood of persecution uh, under Nero in the latter parts of his reign. And all of that would have raised the question among Christians living at that time, and the question is, what is to be our attitude toward uh, human government? And I think that Paul addressed this question so that there would be clarity here, and uh, uh, though it's addressed in a, a, a less complete way in other places in the New Testament, he, he, here in these first seven verses of chapter 13, he wanted there to be a Holy Spirit clarity uh, on the subject so that the Jewish portion of the early church wouldn't be the ones that would fill in the blanks or to be the ones that would answer that question of what is to be our relationship as Christians uh, with the church. Paul did not want them to become the authoritative uh, voice in all of this. You might ask yourself the question, why? Uh, I think the, some historical background helps a little bit here. Most of us are aware that uh, during the time of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, uh, the ancient world was ruled by Rome. And Rome quickly discovered the Jews to be a particularly difficult group uh, to govern. Uh, perhaps more difficult to govern than any other group of people in the entirety of the Roman Empire. By and large, the Jews hated uh, the Roman occupation of their land. They deeply, deeply resented the presence of Roman government, Roman soldiers in the land of, of Israel. And their stubborn resistance to uh, Roman rule, that was a constant. That was always the vibe. That was always the atmosphere in the land. And it was known to those Roman officials that uh, they were there dealing with uh, this kind of a population, with this kind of an attitude uh, toward them. But it wasn't just kind of a, a, the, a, a vibe or, or a, a mental or a hard attitude towards uh, Rome and their, their government there. Occasionally, this attitude of the Jews towards uh, Rome would break out in open revolt, even break out in open uh, warfare, the most famous of which was to come in the future, 12 years after Paul wrote this letter, when in 70 AD the Roman general by the name of Titus 
came in with his Roman legions to put down a Jewish rebellion that filled the land against Rome, began in 66 AD, and by the time he brings those legions in and surrounds the city of Jerusalem, only Jerusalem and Masada are now outside of the hands of of Rome, and uh, he comes in now and effectively brings an end to the fir- what was known as the first Jewish-Roman War in 70 AD, and uh, with a bloody conquest of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as a result. It would take three more years for them to uh, kind of uh, wrest uh, the control of Masada and that part of Israel from the hands of the final kind of uh, uh, Jewish uh, holdouts. And all of this uh, attitude and all of this history made being a Roman governor over Israel one of the least desired posts in the Roman Empire. And uh, behind the Jews' uh, notoriously Uh, bad behavior as citizens was their conviction that to acknowledge a Gentile ruler was sinful. Uh, Moses had declared in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all of the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. That is, no Gentiles. Now, in fact, the religious Jews wouldn't even acknowledge the existence of the Roman presence in Jerusalem or in the land of of Israel at all. They wouldn't acknowledge that the occupying force existed, that any of the soldiers uh, existed in, in, uh, in some respects. They went on about their business largely as if they didn't exist. And as you might imagine, that uh, attitude, that, that vibe was picked up by the Romans. It didn't sit well with them and, uh, and, and uh, met with resistance. Uh, I don't think that when uh, Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion, the beatings that he took uh, and bore at the hands of those Roman soldiers, uh, that was a fury that was meted out not merely upon him, but it was a frustration of Jewish soldiers. Here they have finally a Jew who is uh, referred to as the king of the Jews. And all of the frustration that they felt toward the Jews and, and uh, what it was to uh, rule in that part of the land with these difficult people, I think that Jesus and the beatings that he bore that morning were just a testimony of, of probably what every Roman soldier and official felt on, on some kind of a level. And yet it's important to realize that the, the, the Romans were not saints themselves by any stretch of the imagination. You might remember in John's Gospel, chapter 8, when Jesus, he was speaking uh, to Jews who had come to faith in him, and uh, he declared to these Jews, these Jewish disciples, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Jewish religious leaders overheard Jesus saying that. Uh, to a Jewish audience, and they challenged him immediately over the necessity of any Jew uh, needing to be set free uh, at all. And they declared to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendant, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say uh, to a Jew, essentially, you shall be made free? And then Jesus, of course, he went on to speak of the fact that his offer of freedom had to do with experiencing freedom from the slavery of sin. And so he says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But the statement of the Jewish religious leaders, uh, and and they made it with a straight face, Uh, we are Abraham's descendant and we have never been into bondage uh, to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Speaks to the fact that they did not recognize or accept the authority of Roman rule. 
And when they declare with a straight face that we have never been into bondage to anyone, it's in defiance of their entire history. They'd been in bondage to the Egyptians. They had been in bondage to the Assyrians. They had been in bondage to the Babylonians. They had been in bondage to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And now they're in bondage uh, to Roman uh, rule. But, and, and, but this was their thinking. It was that even though all of these were kind of unfortunate circumstances in, uh, you know, in, in their history, they had never been into bondage to any of them in the sense that they never acknowledged them as having a right to rule over them. And so by and large, the Jews had a negative attitude about Gentiles in general and, uh, and, and a very negative attitude toward Gentile rulers in particular. And, uh, and it wasn't necessarily the view that was held by every single individual Jew, but that was the vibe, that was the atmosphere uh, that, and the context, the environment that, that every Jew was raised in, where this attitude dominated. And no one was more aware of this uh, than the Apostle Paul himself. And thus, he realized that it was vital that neither the church in Rome or the church anywhere in the world, in any point in time, would then by default automatically consider the traditional uh, Jewish view of Gentile government to now become the uh, view to be adopted by Christians as well. And so uh, Paul comes in and he writes this so the one will not carry over into this new thing that God is doing through the church. Additionally, if the early church had gone down the road that the Jews had modeled in their history toward uh, government and government uh, uh, officials, if the early church had followed the Jewish lead, and Paul, again, he knew it better than anyone, He knew that if the church in those early stages, or even now, in later stages in Christian history, but certainly in those early years, if it had become viewed as this group of people that was hostile uh, toward government, uh, that the church was something that was uh, was an institution bent on uh, insurrection wherever it existed, or that the, uh, to have any group of Christians within your country meant that they were going to be a destabilizing force within within the nation or a threat to any existing uh, government, then Paul knew that all of the governments both then and now would have risen up and certainly in the early church would have very likely attempted to completely squash and and destroy the church at the outset and uh, and marginalize it uh, in the very least. Now, every Christian in the world Uh, In this room and everywhere in the world, every single one of us lives within a national and a governmental uh, context. And how we represent ourselves and how we represent Christianity in that context is absolutely vital, more vital than I think the average Christian realizes. And it is vital not only related to our own lives, But the very reputation of God, the very reputation of Christianity uh, in the world is at stake related to us understanding how and what we are to be in relationship to uh, government. And how a government views uh, Christianity will affect how easily uh, the gospel can advance within that nation. And if we become viewed by virtue of our wrong attitudes or our wrong actions or words, if we become uh, viewed uh, by government and by uh, the secular society around us uh, supremely as something contrary to what God calls us to be here as citizens, then it can be completely detrimental to the advancement of the kingdom within our nation or within any nation. And what can happen is if each of us as Christians, we, bear, we're, we have dual citizenship, every one of us. 
We are called uh, citizens of heaven. We have that citizenship. We also are the citizens of whatever nation that we live in. And one of the great temptations that we face as Christians in any age, but it's uh, particularly acute right now, is to get those citizenships backwards. And for my human uh, citizenship, my national citizenship, to become more important to me than my spiritual citizenship. And when that happens, among enough Christians, then what is modeled before the nation is that Christianity is supremely a political entity rather than a spiritual entity. And what can happen to the church as a whole is, is it happens as a whole only because we become seduced and deceived related to these two citizenships in our own lives, where we would ask ourselves in the privacy of our own heart, for within our own families or in our own workplaces or within our own neighborhoods as Christians, do all of these people that we associate with know every view that we have in terms of government, in terms of politics, but how many of them know that we are a Christian? How many of them have we shared the gospel with? And if examining that causes us to be shamed by it, if, we haven't, if people do not know that we are Christian above how we feel about political issues, if they have not heard the gospel from us, then it means that we have gotten these two citizenships completely upside down. And ultimately, it ends up not only being trouble for us individually, but it ends up being trouble for the body of Christ in whatever nation uh, we are in. And ultimately, when people begin to view us is supremely a political uh, a, 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 a organism rather than a spiritual organism, uh, then, then it becomes very, very difficult to witness to people, uh, to share the gospel with them with kind of a, a uncluttered, unbaggaged uh, clarity and simplicity that we would otherwise possess if, if we uh, took seriously. What, what God says here uh, in, in, this, in this passage. And so how to navigate this and how to represent all of this in our lives as Christians is, is so uh, vital. Uh, remember when the Jewish religious leaders brought that accusation uh, ag against uh, Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, Luke 23 records it for us. They accused Jesus before Pilate with these words. We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. All of it was false, completely false concerning Jesus. But they knew what sometimes we lose sight of as Christians. And that is that the quickest way to get rid of Jesus and the quickest way to get rid of Christianity with him was uh, to paint him in Christianity as a threat to any nation in which they live. And this is the very thing that Paul wants us to avoid and what he uh, addresses uh, here in these seven verses. And so we'll examine it uh, here briefly under two main headings. First, what is to be our understanding uh, of the responsibility of human government uh, in, in God's eyes? And then second, what is our responsibility to it as Christian citizens? And so what is to be our understanding of human government as Christians? First, he tells us in verse one that there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. In other words, human government, shakaroo, human government is an institution of God. It is God-ordained. It had its origin in him. God instituted government. Why would he institute government? Why would it even be necessary? That is something that ought to be clearest uh, to Christians of all of the people in the entire world. Given our understanding of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, the creation of man in, in Adam and Eve, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then the fall of Adam and Eve 
in that Garden of Eden? And why is there a, a, the necessity of government uh, in the world? It's necessary because we live in a fallen world, a world that is just absolutely chock full of sinners who have as great a bent toward doing wrong as, any of, as they have toward uh, doing what is right. And because all of us are born with these kind of tendencies, there's a need for some form of law and order to keep it from collapsing as a result of our fallenness into complete moral and physical anarchy. Without human government, everything would devolve into the survival of the fittest, might, might makes right, it would devolve into complete anarchy, and it would result in a world that no one would want to live in. You take away government, you take away uh, all laws, and then the enforcement of those laws, and you stop and think about, <coughs> excuse me, what the world would become in an instant. Getting home from church if there were no government, no laws, no order, no enforcement of laws, we'd all be driving Humvees with machine guns in them. It would be a dystopian uh, fantasy, these science fiction movies that are made uh, now. Heading out into public would be uh, a, a dangerous thing to always, uh, always do. Nothing and no one uh, would be safe without government. Now, when Paul declares that the institution of government is an institution of God, he is not declaring that every leader in human government is personally appointed by God. And he is certainly not declaring that God endorses uh, every action and every decision of every leader uh, in the world. Paul is simply saying that the fact that they rule at all that they even have a governmental structure from which to rule, they owe to God and His institution of government. The second thing that we're to, to understand about government is that God not only established the institution of human government, but we also see in this passage uh, Paul listing some of the responsibilities that are to be borne by government. And we notice that Paul declares that sometimes, uh, there in verse 4, these authorities must uh, wield the, the sword, and, and they're given a divine right to do so. And when it talks about this, that is government is to defend its citizenry uh, to the point of killing in order to do so. And so, in, in the light of this, the first responsibility of a government is to protect its citizens from attack from without. That is, to, pr to protect its citizens from being invaded by another country, to protect its citizens in the event of a war with another country. And as a result, all around the world, and historically it's been so, uh, as a part of government, there's the necessity of military forces in order to accomplish that. A second responsibility of government is to protect its citizens from attack from within, uh, one citizen attacking another. This is called crime and, uh, and wrongdoing. And so the government has a responsibility to protect uh, its citizens from the wrongdoing of other citizens. And thus, there's the necessity of police departments, sheriff departments, all manner of, of law enforcement agencies. And then you have everything that's associated with it, the courts and the jails and, and the prison systems. The third responsibility of government that Paul brings out here uh, is to enact laws that reward righteousness and, uh, and reward good people. Laws that assure that the, pro that the righteous will prosper within this nation. And then to pass laws that will punish evil and it will make sure that within the boundaries of this country that crime will never pay and so government is intended to provide this, this kind of a social, moral environment for its citizens. Uh, Peter brings this out in his first epistle in chapter 2. He said, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, 
whether to the king is supreme or to governors, uh, as uh, to those who are sent by him. And then here is the point. For the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And so here you have government, the government of any nation. Uh, it can become many things. It can become much more than these three things. But it is never to be less than these three, these three things. It is, it is a bare minimum. It is to provide these things to uh, its citizens in order that it can be what God has intended government to be. And then with these responsibilities, God also gives government full authority uh, to enforce uh, the, uh, the, uh, these responsibilities, to carry out these three responsibilities that, that we've spoken about. Again, in ver uh, verse 4, Paul declares, rulers do not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. In other words, Paul is saying that rulers have the authority to make these kind of laws to enforce these kind of laws, and uh, all the way up to and including capital punishment, uh, the power of uh, life and, uh, and death, and that's given to government. Sometimes you'll hear a Christian who will say um, that they're opposed to uh, capital punishment. person is perfectly free to hold that view. But sometimes you'll hear a Christian say, because I am a Christian, I am against capital punishment. That you can't go there. You can't go there. And it's usually with the idea that if you were as deep in God and as deep in love and as deeply connected with the Lord as I am and as deeply mature as a Christian as I am, you would be opposed to capital punishment, <clears throat> excuse me, as well. And so everybody who believes in capital punishment as a Christian is some lesser Christian. A Christian is free uh, to oppose capital punishment, uh, but, uh, but is not free to look at it and say, I oppose it as a Christian. It is, it is a right that God gives to government in the enforcement uh, of the laws uh, of that government and, and related to capital uh, crime. Ideally, a government will recognize uh, that its authority comes from God. And when a government, uh, as was in the founding fathers related to this country, certainly in uh, formative stages in, in England, where there was a recognition that this government is to be under God. And when a government recognizes that it's an institution of God and it is intended to, it is itself under authority, then it will work very hard to make God's definitions of right and wrong uh, the, the foundation and the standard for, uh, for their laws and, and then to enforce those laws. And when a government does that, they will enjoy a confidence that, that they are God's ministers for good uh, to their citizens. Now, uh, we move second here to our responsibility uh, to human government as Christians. First, he tells us in verse 1 that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. And the idea is that of all of the citizens uh, of all of the nations of all of the world, that Christians are to be the most peaceful citizens and the most law-abiding citizens in whatever nation uh, we live in. We are not to be insurrectionists. We're not to be revolutionaries against governmental authority or uh, against the legitimate God-given functions uh, of, uh, of government. Again, it, 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 this, it, we of all the peoples in the world as Christians, uh, we should recognize by virtue of Genesis, again, chapters 1 through 3, we should recognize the necessity of government, of law and order in a fallen world uh, that, uh, that the rest of the world doesn't see with quite that kind uh, of clarity. And we should recognize and understand uniquely in, in all of the world that generally as frustrating as government can be, 
uh, as, as challenging and infuriating as human government can be at times. It is better than no government, and it is better than anarchy. This does not mean that we cannot use legitimate means and we cannot use peaceful means to work for change within a government and within a society as Christians. And it also does not mean that we are to always obey the government without qualification uh, as Christians. There is a single great qualification to obedience and submission to human authority, and that is if the government oversteps its bounds and then decides that it is now going to command us to do what would cause us to violate some commandment of God in obeying some uh, government law or some uh, government kind of command that has been uh, put upon us. Though our relationship with God is supreme in our life, and if we are ever being forced by a government to choose between obeying that government or obeying God, we are always to choose God and then allow God to take care of it. God is not concerned at that point that his reputation is in play or is going to be misunderstood in some way within that culture. That is an extraordinary uh, situation. Uh, that, that he gives us that kind of uh, freedom related to it. We see twice in the book of Acts where it occurred, once in chapter 4, once in chapter 5, Peter and John, they were told by the Sanhedrin not to preach in the name of Jesus, and uh, they replied uh, to, in the face of that command, contrary to what the Great Commission is from God, they said, judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And the very next uh, chapter, subsequently, they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. This very same Sanhedrin has them arrested, not just Peter and John, but all of the apostles. And as they call them on the carpet for violating uh, their command not to uh, fill Jerusalem with this doctrine of this man, of Jesus, and and, uh, why are you doing what we've commanded you uh, not to do? And Peter responded on behalf of all of the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. A second thing that we are to uh, be a part of our responsibility to human government as Christians is in verse 2, we're to realize that whoever resists the authority uh, God gives to government uh, resists the ordinance of God. There is the recognition, and to be the recognition again, that government is an institution of God. And, and to resist its authority is to resist what uh, God has ordained and what he has uh, put into effect. In other words, a Christian should not only uh, uh, not be rebelling against man, uh, but, it, but a, a Christian, if he rebels against government uh, without you know, being forced by government to obey God or obey them, then there, there's to be that recognition that if we did that, we'd be rebelling not only against man, but also against God. And Paul is declaring to us here that there is no spiritual and secular uh, division here related to government and having a relationship with government. There's a tendency, I think, uh, for us as Christians to think uh, you've got church, you've got the kingdom of God, uh, you've got evangelistic outreaches, you've got the Great Commission, all of this is spiritual. Now we're talking about government, now we're talking about politics, and now we've entered into a realm that isn't spiritual at all, it's completely secular. And Paul is declaring that is not to be our view of government. And that government can be something sacred. It can be, uh, it can be an institution in which uh, we can be an influence for God and, and it can be something that we can sanctify. It's, it is through our obedience to government and becoming a citizen as a Christian that is unique to all of the other citizens in our population is another way for people to see the kingdom of God through our lives and then to glorify God. Certainly, if not in the, in the eyes of the general population, by law enforcement, 
by people in government where they look and say, I wish everyone we dealt with was a Christian. I wish they all had this view toward us. And to realize that that having this, uh, this attitude here and, and this attitude toward, uh, toward, uh, toward government, uh, uh, that, that it is something that, uh, that where something that we tend to think of as purely secular is, is, is an opportunity for something spiritual to happen uh, as, as well. And God views this institution of government as something spiritual because he has ordained it. Now, Paul also declares in verses 3 and 4 that as citizens, uh, he states that uh, rulers are not a terror to good works, uh, but to evil. In other words, the existence of government provides a deterrent uh, to wrong uh, doing. Sometimes people look and they say, well, you know, this certain punishment and this certain sentence or even sentences at all related to crime, it has no effect as a deterrent. The Bible knows nothing about it. Paul knows nothing about that as he writes that here. Uh, Given the fallenness of the world that we live in, the fallenness of of, uh, the human condition, uh, a, a fear of government, a fear of consequences related to violating the laws of a land is a, is a needed deterrent uh, when the people who are being governed are fallen descendants of Adam and Eve, which includes everybody uh, in, in, in the world. Now, if we're law-abiding, Paul says, then we do not need to fear government authority. Uh, uh, but if we're not law-abiding, we should be afraid. Uh, because government has the authority to punish wrongdoing. Uh, the classic example that everybody can uh, understand in, in life uh, is driving on a freeway. It's an experience that we all have. And, uh, and if you're driving down the freeway and you're making your way and you turn some kind of a turn on the freeway or up ahead you notice and all of a sudden there's a CHP vehicle on the side of the road and he's got his radar gun uh, at you and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, and you look down and you're driving 54 miles an hour. I mean, you're completely uh, at peace. Uh, in fact, you get downright chummy related to the CHP. You wave when he says goodbye, go get him, buster, have a great day, and, and, uh, and, and we treat him like our, our best friend. Uh, and, and, uh, and so there's no fear when we obey, obey the laws. But if you're doing 80 miles an hour uh, in, a, in a 65, then your reaction is entirely uh, different. There's an immediate adrenaline spike, massive. Uh, there is the heartbeat begins to pump very, uh, very fast. Uh, you begin to slow off of the accelerator immediately. All of this happens in an instant. And you begin to look, is there anybody going at least slightly faster than I am here uh, that is going to ga- gain his attention? And then we put on our blinker to go into the other slower lane as if that was our intent all along. And to just blend in with all of the law keepers in the other lanes and uh, that we might kind of get lost in, 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 in the, the mass of it. And then there is no peace that we experience at all until we've gone some distance down the road and we don't see the lights in our rearview uh, mirror. I know nothing of this. I got all of it off of Wikipedia. And, uh, but we get it. Uh, and the laws, they produce a fear in us when we do wrong. But when we're keeping the laws, there's nothing, uh, we're completely at peace with law enforcement. It has nothing to do. Uh, so often we have an attitude toward uh, law enforcement or toward government that is solely based upon what we're, uh, who and what we are. But we don't like the finger pointed back in, 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 in this way. And and so, uh, this is to be true of all wrongdoing in society, and uh, and this this fear of doing uh, doing wrong, and uh, and 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 it provides a a a peaceful existence to to the to law-abiding citizens. These laws, and it causes those who uh, practice evil to always be looking over their shoulder. And this is exactly how it needs to be. This is exactly how it has to be. 
Uh, law and order produces an absolutely essential deterrent to crime or wrongdoing. And again, especially when you're dealing with a bunch of descendants of, of Adam and Eve. Fourth, Paul tells us here that as Christians, verse 5, our highest motivation for obeying the laws uh, of our, our nation is not to be fear, uh, not the fear of government, uh, not the fear of being caught by government, not the fear of being punished by government. Uh, that is a, a necessary fear. Uh, that's a, a necessary thing in government to maintain law and order. But it is never to be the supreme thing that drives us as Christians. It is never to be the foundation of our obedience of governmental authority. Uh, it is a motivation, but we possess a greater motivation. And Paul says we ought to submit to this kind of authority and obey these laws out of conscience. Again, having to do laws and fear, that has to do with man, us with man. Conscience has to do with our relationship with God. And the recognition that government is an institution of God, it's been established uh, by God. And so now I want to keep these laws, not because I'm afraid of a speeding ticket or I'm afraid of an audit by the IRS, because I, but that I view my Christian citizenship as one more way uh, to please God in my life and to glorify Him in the nation and in the culture in, in which uh, in which I, I, uh, I live, and so that he can be seen uh, through, through my life and through our lives. Paul put it perfectly, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And obeying the laws of the land and submitting to government uh, can bring glory to God. The fifth thing in the, in, in, uh, on this is we're to support uh, human government by paying our taxes, verse 6. Now you say, now you've gone from preaching to meddling, uh, but uh, you'll, you'll see the importance of it. And the reason Paul calls upon us as Christians to pay taxes is there's a natural resentment in us, uh, in anybody, uh, to do that. But he, he gives us the explanation for it in, in verse 6, and that is that uh, keeping an environment of law and order within a nation is a full-time job. It's not something that people do on the weekends or that uh, uh, some force of people can do uh, two hours a week if we involve enough people. He's talking about the fact this involves people giving their entire lives to it. And if people give their entire lives to the maintaining of law and order on every level within government, within society, and if their positions are required in order to do that, then, then they are uh, deserving of the support uh, of taxes. They are to be financially supported by all of, of, of her citizens that are involved in those, those positions for the simple reason that all of us enjoy the benefits. Uh, of the work that they're doing. And all of us know that government requires money. It always has. It always will. But it requires uh, money to operate. And, and I think it's important to, to, uh, to state here what we all recognize. There's always going to be a debate on the size of government and the scope of government. That has always happened in every government in the world all throughout all of human history. It's going on in our age. It's going on in our nation. It will go on long after we uh, are dead and in heaven. It, it, this, this tension between the different groups and what is to be the size, what is to be the scope of government. And conservatives look at things and they are uh, uh, traditionally uh, believe in a, a limited or a narrow scope of in terms of, of, of its power and what it, you know, what it introduces itself into. Liberals generally want to enlarge the size and scope of government. And there's always this ebb and flow of this within, within a nation. And, but a Christian is to pay their taxes to support whatever the government supplies to us in the midst of all it. 
I think so often we write uh, that check or checks to government related uh, to taxes. And sometimes you just have to stop for a moment, as Paul does here, and to stop and to realize that it isn't just money that's uh, as wasteful as government can be. It isn't just being thrown into a fire, uh, but that we, we enjoy uh, blessings as a result of that. You think about what uh, government uh, and, and those tax dollars supply to us, a military. And in the United States of America, uh, based upon the government that we are, the country that we are in the world, we're in need of four branches of, of the military and the Coast Guard. That's how dangerous the world is that we, that we live in. And we're constantly worried about it being underfunded even at that. And then you have the danger, again, all of this having to do with the danger of attack from without. And then uh, the danger of attack from without against us as America, United States citizens it is it become so great and become uh, so uh, nuanced and clever in the age in which we live that now you've got to have a Department of Homeland Security uh, needed to keep us safe. And then you have uh, the, the supplying of police and other law enforcement uh, agencies, not only on a local level, but on, on a national level, involving the FBI and the CIA, so many law enforcement agencies, and the court systems that go with them, and the jails, and of necessity, the prisons, that all provide us with protection from attack from from within, and they involve a massive number of people. And then there are fire departments, there is the U.S. Forestry Service, there's public education, there are people who pave our streets and our highways. Uh, we have a, a sewer that is connected to our homes. We have clean water that comes uh, I into our homes. You've got those that work to keep our food supplies safe and our water supplies safe. And it goes all the way down to the proverbial dog catchers uh, within a, 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 a city. And, and, and on and on we could go with that list. And if you're in government and I missed you, I'm, I'm sorry uh, uh, for that. But we're the beneficiary of all of these resources and, and the law and order on top of it, and we're to support it by paying for, for our tax, uh, through our taxes. Again, Jesus taught us uh, so perfectly when, when they, uh, they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus answered as he had that coin in, in his hand and said, again, uh, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. And Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar what bears his image, but only give what bears God's image, you and me, to God. And so give government your money, but only give uh, God uh, 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 your, your life. And then finally, he says, we're not only to pay taxes, but we're to pay customs, which is the equivalent of our sales tax in the ancient world. And then to give fear to those who are do it, honor to those who are do it, there in verse 7. And uh, not just money. It's not just, okay, I gave them my money, but I hate them all. Uh, or I disrespect them all. Uh, no, Paul says, no, we're not going to stop with money. Uh, they are uh, uh, due respect and reverence, and, and they are, are, are on that level, and they are, are due honor as, as well. And if we cannot honor the man or the woman who holds the office because they are truly uh, a dishonorable person, then we are to honor the office itself and the institution and the place that that office plays in this overall scope of government and the institution of God, uh, that, it, that it is. You remember that at the time that Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, there were no Christians in government anywhere. Anywhere. There were no Christians in government in the Roman Empire. 
He wasn't talking about something that, you know, you can go get involved in and it'll be a 50-50 chance you run into a Christian. There are no Christians in government at this, at this particular uh, uh, time uh, at all. And, uh, and government largely indifferent at best towards the church in those days, unfriendly to the church in those days, often very, very hostile. And yet Paul recognized them to be doing something God-ordained in the world that was to be supported by Christians, not only in terms of money, but in terms of respect and in terms of honor. So again, Christians are to be we're to be known worldwide for possessing a great uh, respect for authority. And, and the younger you are as a generation in the United States of America, uh, I think uh, this passage uh, certainly examines all of us in terms of our attitude in this way. But progressively, I've been alive for a little while now, progressively, Respect for authority and respect for government, it continues to become less and less and less as time has gone on until you can begin to wonder who's even going to one day be willing to take any of these positions. And we're not to play any, any part in that uh, at, at, at all. And so it's important to allow this passage, no matter what my generation thinks, no matter what my culture or my peers think of government, I am a Christian, and this is to be my view for the glory of God, but also for the advancement of the kingdom of God within the, the nation in which we live. I remember years and years ago, I, I, I watched for a little while uh, that show Cops. I don't even know if it's on anymore. And uh, came on on Saturday nights, and it was just, it was just great heart preparation for Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, you just come to church hating everybody. I'm, I'm just kidding. But I, I stopped watching it because it was not a great influence uh, for me. Imagine doing the job. But, you know, but sometimes you'll see even today where there'll be a video that'll become, you know, wild on the Internet, and then here's this thing in this arrest or a shooting or some kind of a thing and, and involving law enforcement or whatever it might be. And, and, and occasionally I'll watch those, and, and, and you got a person sassing, and, and it's just like, you are not in control of this situation. What makes you think you're in control of this situation? That this is a dialogue that they're having with you. And that when they say, get down or get out of the car, or, get on your face, that somehow he's, he or she has opened up a debate. This is going to be a discussion now, whether you do that or not. And this is more and more and more common. And this is the context in which we are Christian citizens. And the more it becomes like that, if we will be what we're supposed to be, then it becomes our witness, even in the realm of being a citizen, becomes more and more powerful in the nation, in the world in, 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 which, in which we live. And so... This is Paul's instruction to us about how to be a, a, a Christian and how to navigate government and how to see government and what our relationship with government uh, is to be and that we're to do it because it's right in the eyes of God, but also because if we get these two citizenships upside down and my human citizenship means more to me than my spiritual citizenship, and that's the thing that drives me more than my spiritual citizenship, then we will do great damage to the, advance, to the name of Christ and the reputation of Christ, and great damage to the advancement of the gospel and the Great Commission within our culture. So much is, is writing, more than I think that we can even understand, is writing on not only knowing these things, but making them characteristic of our lives and our views of government and our relationship with it. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.
Father, we see that your Holy Spirit uh, didn't, Paul didn't come in out of left field when he brought in these seven verses into his letter. And we feel in our own hearts and our minds and in our spirits the necessity of a passage like this, instruction like this, Lord, so that we know how to represent you in every environment in the world that we find ourselves in, in every hat that we wear, Lord, in life. And I pray and we pray for this passage and whatever it's intended to correct and adjust in any of our hearts today, that, Lord, just help us to allow that uh, to happen. And then, Lord, when government does something or some official, something goofy, and they're far short of, of what it is that we know that they should be and what you want them to be. And our reaction will be naturally something of disrespect or dishonor uh, toward them, that you would remind us of this passage, Lord, and let this citizenship come to the forefront, Lord, in that situation. We beg you for that that ministry and the bringing of, to our remembrance of your scripture, uh, this truth of our Christian life as is needed as well. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.